Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following broadcast is produced by Brookside Meeting House Companies, LLC. Doing business as Forget-Me-Not Ancestry. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Jane Wilcox, and we are listening to the Forget-Me-Not Hour, Your Ancestors Want Their Stories to Be Told. Welcome to the show. This morning, our topic is Freedmen of the Five Civilized Tribes, and my guest is Angela Walton-Raji. And How this show came about is, you may recall a few months ago, I did a broadcast on the uh, five civilized tribes, which are the southeastern tribes of the United States, the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Creek, and Seminole. And some of my listeners uh, said, there's another group of people that are involved with these uh, tribes who went to Oklahoma uh, via the Trail of Tears. And uh, so actually Bernice Bennett uh, introduced me to Angela. And uh, Angela is an expert on this other group of people uh, who are called the freedmen of the five civilized tribes. So these groups, this group of people were the enslaved Africans who were uh, kept by the tribes in the southeastern United States. And these Africans also went on the Trail of Tears out to Oklahoma. Um, so uh, when I found out that uh, there was this other group of people, uh, I, Angela and I had a conversation. Uh, we had already connected on Facebook uh, uh, within the last year or so as a genealogy network, and I invited Angela to come on the show and talk specifically about the freedmen of the five civilized tribes. So today we're focusing on the African Americans uh, who are very intimately connected with five civilized tribes. So Angela, um, I'm excited to have you on the show. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Jane. Uh, Pleasure to be here. All right. All right. And I should say, uh, just kind of a preview. Uh, So we're going to be finding out the the history of the freedmen. We're also uh, going to be uh, talking about the records uh, that you can use to research the freedmen of the five civilized tribes, uh, in particular, the Jaws rolls and other uh, types of records. Um, So before we get into uh, that part of the show, Angela, will you tell us about yourself, where you were born, raised, your education, and your careers? Sure. I was born in a border city, meaning the border of Arkansas and Oklahoma, Fort Smith, Arkansas. And uh, if you grow up in a town like that, which has a very rich western frontier history, uh, just about everybody grows up hearing a lot about westward movement, 
westward expansion, and of course the Trail of Tears, which went through the city as well. It is also the home of Judge Parker, the famous hanging judge on the western frontier. Um, Having grown up in Fort Smith, like many residents of the city, half of us have relatives right across the river in Oklahoma, and literally right across the river. You can just look out your door and see the next state. Um, but it's a city with an amazingly rich history and a fascinating, fascinating uh, role that it played in history. I grew up there, went to high school there as well, and uh, then went to school in the Midwest, St. Louis University, again on the banks of a river. I guess I tend to follow rivers on uh, the banks of the Mississippi and majored in Romance languages, Spanish and French, and then moved for a few years uh, to the Northeast, lived in Boston for about 14 years, worked at uh, two universities, Boston College and then at Tufts University before relocating, relocating again to uh, the mid-Atlantic area where I still am and have been here since 1990. Uh, being close to Maryland, uh, being in Maryland but close to Washington gave me an opportunity to really immerse myself more in depth with the genealogical research, being so close to the National Archives. And it was in 1991 when I decided to research my great-grandmother, whom I knew very well. Uh, I was nine years old when she died, and, um, you know, someone that, you know, was close to me, growing up again in a city like Fort Smith, Fort Smith's unique because it borders two nations. The north side of the city borders the Cherokee Nation, and the southern part of the city borders the Choctaw Nation. My great-grandmother was from the Choctaw Nation. I knew that. She spoke the language fluently, and um, that was nothing that was a new or a surprise. But I became more interested in trying to find out if I could actually find records, if there were records to find. And it was May of 1991 on a trip to the National Archives that I did find not only my great-grandmother, but great-grandfather and Grandpa Sam and, um, and, and uncle and aunt also on the Dawes Road. But what surprised me was learning the fact that my, both of my great-grandparents as well as their parents had been slaves not that they had been born slaves, because they were obviously born before 1860, but to learn that they had been slaves in the Choctaw Nation. That required a, a steep learning curve. I really had to immerse myself in literature and scholarly works and learn a little bit more about this history. And, of course, a lot of things made sense after that, records that we had, family artifacts, that had references to roll numbers and little in little notes that said, you know, uh, FR behind them, but now it made sense. Oh, Friedman, okay. Now I see what this means. But since that time, go ahead. And I was say, are these two great-grandparents your only connection to the Friedman of the five civilized tribes? Well, uh, my great-grandparents and uh, my grandfather – and my Uncle Houston and my Aunt Louisa as well, they were all on the dog's roll. The entire family was. And, okay. um, of course, the record itself was created um, in 18 – well, they enrolled in 1898 and were eventually, you know, put on the rolls when the rolls closed um, and were finally, you know, uploaded as, as, as a record set. But, um, but, of course, their history itself goes much further back. 
Um, <clears throat> my great-grandmother's mother, Amanda, um, was a slave of the Perry family. The Perrys uh, relocated in 1831 with the first um, exit of Choctaws from Mississippi, and her mother, Kitty, uh, came with the Perrys. And um, this is something that's been well-documented, um, and they were there on the Armstrong Road, the, the first emigration, emigration with an E, uh, from Mississippi, they were, you know, they were certainly recorded there, yes. And I have others who subsequently cousins and, and extended family who are also in the Dawes Rolls. Okay. All right. And we're going to talk more about the Dawes Rolls a, a little bit mm-hmm. uh, later in the show. And, so, and then actually one, one question about you personally. So were you a professor then of Romance languages when you were in Boston? No, I was not. I was I was a paper pusher. I was a university administrator. I uh, worked in uh, undergraduate admissions for many years. And then um, when I moved to Maryland, I became the director of graduate school recruitment at University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and recruited students for master's and doctoral programs, over 33 programs at UMC. Okay. So I All right. did a lot of administrative things, but my okay. language skills have always helped. Definitely, definitely. So let's focus now on the, the, the Africans who were among the five civilized tribes. Um, so when were Africans first enslaved with these tribes? Was there one tribe in particular that, that started uh, enslavement? And uh, just kind of give us a, a, a little bit of their mm-hmm. history. Well, the contact between African and Native Americans certainly goes back um, much, much earlier. Um, there are cases, of course, in, in earlier colonial America when people who had been enslaved in the Carolinas uh, began to flee from bondage and flee southward into Florida. Many of them formed an alliance with the Native people who were there who were also fighting against people who were encroaching upon their land. Particularly, this happened uh, and, and and among people who later became Seminoles, uh, registered warriors who broke away from the Creeks who later settled in Florida, they formed uh, they formed an alliance and really sort of supported each other. So that contact was was probably some of the earliest contact in terms of at least North America. But in terms of slavery as an institution, the earliest documented. Native American slaveholder is the most beloved woman of the Cherokee Nation, Nancy Ward. Nancy Ward is um, considered most beloved woman. She was given an honorary title um, after a particular battle that occurred in <clears throat> excuse me, the late 1700s when there was a battle. Uh, white settlers had attacked this particular settlement of Native people, and her husband had been killed. She was so upset that her husband was killed. She ran to her husband's side. She seized his weapon, and she killed her husband's assailant. Her own people were so amazed at her bravery, they just bestowed such an honor upon her. She was given the title Gigao, meaning beloved woman, and she was elevated to very high status within the tribe. One of her prizes, per se, or gifts, for her bravery in that particular situation was a Negro slave. That was the first documented case of a Cherokee owning a slave. By the early 1800s, around 1813, she was a woman of wealth, and she was a regular purchaser of slaves. Slavery itself, which was something that was learned 
by Europeans with whom there had been considerable contact. And um, by the time of the removal, many, not all, but many, of the leaders within the tribe, as well as within other tribes, had um, started having, uh, well, realizing it was maybe to an advantage to purchase these individuals as slaves, as was being done and was spreading throughout the South in particular, but spreading throughout America as well particularly in southern states where they were. Um, by the time of removal in Cherokee Nation, approximately a 1,000 or so slaves were taken west on the, at the time of the removal, uh, fewer numbers with other tribes, and the relationships varied. But again, relationships varied every place um, in parts of, of America, parts of the north, parts of the south. Different relationships certainly occurred. But um, still, the practice of chattel slavery still grew, and it did. It was taken west into the territory. People were born there. Um, my great grandmother uh, was born in the territory. Well, she was born in, in in the middle of the Civil War, but her mother also, Amanda, had also been born in the territory in the Choctaw Nation as well. So you're we're talking about individuals who maybe their parents had learned the English language of their white slaveholders, those taken west, uh, those who were born into the tribal environment, had also learned the native language of their Indian slaveholders as well. And my great-grandmother, she was bilingual. She did speak Choctaw English as well, of course. Okay, okay. So then with the... Uh the Africans who were enslaved uh, among the Native Americans. Um, when we, we think of slavery in the South, we, we think of the, the big plantations where there are hundreds of enslaved Africans working at a plantation. Uh, here mm-hmm. in the North, uh, we've got New York and New England, where uh, especially mm-hmm. in the Hudson Valley, we've got Dutch families who have mm-hmm. enslaved Africans. And maybe they yeah. have one or two Maybe sure, eight yeah. at the most. So, so what what were the Native Americans doing with their slaves? And you know, were they a majority were small farmers, small slaveholders. However, the tribal leaders were the people of wealth. Um, um, Chief John Ross, for example, held he and his brother Lewis Ross, the two of them held uh, over a combination of two hundred slaves. In the Choctaw Nation, Robert Jones was the wealthiest slaveholder. He held over 500 people in bondage on three different farms. And, of course, one of the things that you can see, Peter Pitchland held oh, dozens and dozens of, of slaves. However, a majority of the people, the regular people, like a majority of Southerners, didn't hold uh, huge, uh, enormous plantations, um, many held, you know, maybe a family or maybe two families. Some held just one slave. Um, so it did vary. Um, but your wealthier people within the tribes were, again, they were wealthy. They were Southerners. And by the time they went westward, they took a Southern culture with them. They took the Southern um, religion, custom, the practice, also Southern slavery. They took it with them. The wealthier ones clearly earned, um, certainly owned or held more people in bondage. Um, the same tribes, understand, fought for the South in the Civil War. At the beginning of the Civil War, 1861, the five tribes 
signed an alliance with the Confederate States and fought for the states. There were three units that did flee northward and go into Kansas. Uh, that were Union regiments, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, Indian Home Guards. There was a 4th unit, but it never really got organized and never really saw any battle. However, there were over 24 Confederate Native American units. So um, they were Southern sympathizers. They're Southerners. Certainly that was part of their culture geographically as well as culturally. Okay, and they took that to Oklahoma with them. Um, so then well, the while they're – um, while they're they're back in the South, before they enslaved Africans, were they enslaving other Native Americans and or well, Europeans? Think, well, I guess it's it's probably I guess that's the word to use. But slavery was was somewhat different. Um, many people in probably every part of the world where there have been conflicts and they've captured people of 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 a, a warring population or population with whom they had had um, some sort of, of conflict with and would capture them. But usually that capturing meant that person who was captured became absorbed into that community. There wasn't that concept that thrived in the United States, which was different, where a person was enslaved forever and ever and their children forever and ever and their children's children forever and ever. If one sees in uh, probate records uh, when a person was making their last will, say in Tennessee or Mississippi, and um, um, old Toby is being given to their son or their daughter to be a slave for life, or Phoebe and all of her issue, meaning every child she gives birth to shall be enslaved. That was not common. That really wasn't common in any other place in the world. Um, in America, it's our unique, peculiar institution, but um, no, it wasn't quite to that degree, um, at least prior to exposure to black chattel slavery as we know it today, or it's certainly we know how it was. Okay. Okay. And then uh, again, uh, f focusing on uh, back when they're in the South, you you mentioned uh, you know the the relationship between Africans and Native Americans. Were were there also free Africans uh, who oh. were among the tribes, and were they intermarrying? Yeah. Some were. The numbers were not as large as I think sometimes people want to, to hear that, oh, my gosh, you know, they took us in and we married them and all of this. Uh, not quite that large, but there were free people. Um, if you look at the 1860 census of, well, in Arkansas, there's a reel of microfilm uh, known as Lands West of Arkansas. If you look at the 1860 census, you will find free people living among the tribes, uh, probably the the most restrictive was the Chickasaws. They were not quite as as embracing, but um, you find free people among Cherokees, uh, Choctaws, Creeks, and Seminoles in particular. And you find several hundred free people of color living within the tribes, those four tribes in particular, and. Um, there were probably the largest number of free people living among Creeks and Seminoles. Cherokees did have some. Um, Choctaws had one large sort of extended family, uh, the Beans family, 
and they had a particularly difficult time. They had some half-siblings who, um, when they were in Mississippi uh, at the time, um, <clears throat> the Beams, who were the product of a second marriage of a white landholder who had married a mulatto woman and had children with her. His first wife was deceased. She was Choctaw. And as people had moved west, um, the children from Nellie, the mulatto woman, didn't realize their two older siblings had put out a warrant for them to be captured and sold into slavery. Um, and that saga went on until 1859. And it was something that was a strange case. But if one reads the story of the Beams family, uh, the Choctaw Nation, Dr. Daniel Littlefield uh, wrote an extensive piece about that uh, back in the 1970s in the Journal of Negro History. And um, tremendous, tremendous family saga. However, that family intermarried with other families. They fought, uh, you know, the, the cases to enslave them repeatedly. Um, they had intermarried among Choctaw people as well as other tribes as well. Now you see the Beams surname appearing in Creeks and, and even in Cherokees as well. But um, on the other hand, with Cherokees, I'm sorry, with um, Creeks and Seminoles, there was a lot of, of, of social interaction. And um, even after slavery had ended, the tribes were very dependent on particularly the African citizens, many of whom were bilingual, had a tremendous skill, not just in languages, but also politically, were leaders in the tribe for some time. And then let's add another uh, element to this. So we've got enslaved African women who I'm assuming like, uh, you know, we, we've heard uh, in the the South uh, that they're raped, you know, as, as they're, by their masters and uh, the resulting children are mm-hmm. biracial. How mm-hmm. were they assimilated into this culture? Were they then considered slaves because the the mother was a slave? If the or... mother was a slave, the child was a slave, very much like the South. And so, yeah, you know, it really depends. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, you know, in the Deep South also, there was obviously non-consensual contact between people. And um, if a woman had had children and she was enslaved, and of course that carried in even into the Dawes era, if uh, someone's mother had been enslaved, they were put on a roll called freedmen, regardless of the fact that they may have had native blood or what have you, and sort of that, um, you know, still having to carry the badge or the, the whatever of, of slavery with them. And of course, that is why you have a classification of roles, 14,000 people called freedmen, although they had lived in the nation, lived by the laws of the nation, lived in the culture of the nations in which they're uh, they were born, and um, but yeah, that is you know certainly what happened. Okay, all right. Um, so we are going to take a break uh, right now. This is the Forget Me Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told, and we'll be right back. Okay.
welcome back. This is the Forget Me Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. As you're listening on Blog Talk Radio, uh, you will see a follow button on the uh, computer screen. If you press that button, you'll receive an email letting you know that the show is going on the air. Um, also, you'll see a bunch of social media buttons. Please share the Forget Me Not Hour with your friends and family on social media. Uh, you'll also uh, see on the Blog Talk page the Forget Me Not Hour archives. Uh, we have over six years of shows, uh, t- usually twice a month, and there are timeless shows, so please take advantage of that. And you can also take the Forget Me Not Hour on the road with you. Uh, you can get it uh, via iTunes uh, if you uh, look for Jane E. Wilcox. Uh, you'll find it there. Uh, today we're talking about the freedmen of the five civilized tribes with Angela Walton Raji. Um, and Angela, before we uh, focus on Oklahoma, um, one question about Nancy Ward and uh, her first purchase of a slave. What kind of documentation was there that that shows scholars she was the first one? Um, that's a very interesting question. Um, uh, there are many references if you look at almost just about every um, history of Cherokee people. Uh, there is that reference. Now, there was no census at that time, <clears throat> and it is pointed out that she was the first one that it was ever recorded. Now, it does not mean necessarily that there were not other cases where people were aware of the institution. Um, I particularly rely on the scholarship of Dr. Daniel Littlefield and uh, and others, but um, that is always sort of the, the, the footnote being sort of the first documented one. Now, um, maybe because that particular battle, I think it was called the Battle of Talima, um, which is the one in which she was given this slave as a prize for her bravery, uh, were there others who had already owned slaves? Possibly so, um, but I, you know, don't know that in particular. Uh, if there were records, I'm not even certain if it was known how many slaves she eventually ended up owning. Except, of course, one always hears that yes, by the mid 18, uh, early 18 teens, she was purchasing them regularly. And uh, but there's no list of who they were uh, or list of what happened to them. Although I, there are some, uh, I believe, who now are in Kansas who are part of a society of people who are also freedmen descendants of people who are part of the Nancy Ward Society. But I don't know that particular answer to that question. Okay. Okay. And then uh, one more question about uh, living in the South. So I had always been under the impression, uh, which you mentioned early in the show, that you know, on occasion, uh, actually, I don't know that you mentioned this, that an escaped African slave uh, would go to the Native Americans and would be welcome into the fold. Um, you know, that's that's is that a myth? And are there other myths that need to be dispelled? Well, I think um, oftentimes what one hears about is what happened in Florida in particular. Uh, Across the board, you know, with this sort of, hey, come to me, my brother, we welcome you. I think that part might be a little bit stretched. On the other hand, what did happen in Florida, we've got to understand the Second Seminole War, as was reported, I can't remember which general it was who was reporting about the, the conflict in Florida, 
in the 1830s. He said, you know, this is really uh, not really an Indian war. This is a Negro war because the fact is that people knew that they were going to be removed from Florida, but the fact was that they said uh, they, meaning um, the Red Stick Warriors, meaning the Seminoles in particular, we have formed an alliance with uh, these other people whom you want to keep as slaves. We're going to take them with us. They are now part of us. And so the, the actual battles and the conflicts around allowing these individuals who had gone into Florida, had fought at Apalachicola and other places with people who, had, who were now Seminoles, and they said, no, we're not going to leave them behind. If we have to go, all of us are going to go. And finally, of course, if you look at some of the records that you see in the congressional record serial set, you'll see the bands of Africans that were also relocated with the Seminoles with them and not being taken as slaves of the population but being taken as part of the population. Um, across the board, did it happen in other places? Perhaps. I don't. I know that there are um, cases where in the Northeast, if you look at Long Island, the Shinnecock population is certainly a triracial population, and many of whom were biracial black and Native people in Long Island. And also in New England, you have the Pequots and Mashantucket Pequots and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, Golden Hill Pogasset in Connecticut. So you do have individuals where where it's known that there was African and Native intermixing. Um, would I say across the board? I couldn't say that because I'm not studied every community. But um, you know, certainly there are other places along the Eastern Seaboard where there was contact. I understand, obviously, in parts of Virginia as well, among um, some of the Virginia tribes. Monkey Mattapani as well. There was contact, and not necessarily um, um, burdened down with with the, the the issue of slavery that you found in the southeast. Um, so there was contact there. Tuscarora, I understand as well in parts of eastern, northeastern North Carolina. But again, you know, I've not studied every tribe, so uh, my okay. knowledge is basically five times. Okay, and then to, to give us a, a time context, when was the Second Seminole War? Second Seminole War, we're talking about the time period in the 1830s before Seminole removal. Seminoles uh, were among the last to be removed to the territory. Um, the Indian removal really began. It, w it went basically about a decade long in terms of the different waves of removal. The Choctaws began first in 1830, 31 that winter. <clears throat> excuse me, that winter. And um, by the mid-1830s, other tribes were being removed as well. Cherokees, of course, their removal being so very painful, the actual trail of tears is really the Cherokee removal because there was so much loss of life during that removal. Uh, about a third of the tribe population died on the removal, and um, which is why there was so much weeping. That's why it was a trail of weeping of tears. And, um, but a lot of people use the trail of tears as a generic term. But um, there were several removals all during that period, in addition to the fact that later other tribes also ended up in what is now Oklahoma. Um, the territory had taken in not only the five tribes of the southeast, but you also found um, tribes from what we now call the Midwest, 
from uh, the Ohio Valley. Shawnees are now in Oklahoma. Senecas, uh, that's a New York tribe, uh, but a portion of the Seneca um, population is also there. The Delawares, you find second facts. Um, in fact, um, Oklahoma is the state that has the largest number of federally recognized tribes today. Uh, and of course, um, of course, the largest populations being from the southeast, uh, the five civilized tribes. But there are 35 other tribes that are based there as well. So. Okay. All right. And then one last question before we move uh, into Oklahoma. Are there any other myths that uh, need to be dispelled? I don't know. Um, you hear all kinds of myths, um, of course. Um, many people maybe have um, stories of their own ancestor uh, being, you know, part of one of the, the five tribes. And uh, if one goes into detail or asking them, oh, where do they live exactly? And they'll come up with, a, you know, a state that uh, it's not exactly um, the right state for them to be from if that is part of their ancestry. But, um, I mean, one hears all kinds of things, you know, and I, I don't try and dispel them. I just listen. And, um, you know, if, if they ask for records, I can, you know, show them where records are. But uh, I don't okay. try and... and you know, embarrass anybody or anything. Okay. Okay. So then, then we're we're moving on to Oklahoma, and I think you answered this question earlier in the show, and it didn't register. How many enslaved Africans went with the the five tribes? It varied. It varied by tribe. Um, as I said, the largest number of those that were documented were among the Cherokees. I've heard the number as high as fifteen hundred. I don't think it was that high. I'd say close to a thousand, um, and I would say just a few dozen went with the Choctaws, for example. And, uh, and they were the first to immigrate. Um, on the other hand, several dozen obviously were relocated um, in the 1800s with Seminoles, but many of them were not slaves. They were free people again. That was from the Seminole War. Creeks did take slaves with them, but there's no definitive number there. But we're talking, though, by um, 1860, when there was a real count that was made we're talking about approximately 5,000, and maybe that's maybe stretching it by 200 or so, uh, maybe 4,500 to 5,000 people were enslaved uh, in the territory. And this is based on the 1860 slave schedule that did of the slaves and um, in Indian territory by tribe. And... Um, by the end of the 19th century into the 20th century, those who were later designated as freedmen, either being having been born enslaved or having been the children of slaves, we're talking about approximately 12 to 14,000 people who were then put on the Dawes Rolls as freedmen, either having been formerly enslaved or their children. Um, okay, all right. You know, so then after the Civil War, with uh, uh, total emancipation in 1866, there were uh, uh, just maybe over 5,000? Yeah, I would say that's e the safest number. Yes, about 5,000 people scattered among all the five tribes, um, okay. excluding those who had maybe poured into Indian territory illegally and who were intruders. That won't count. But those who were really part of the tribe themselves, yes. Okay. Okay. And then, what happened to these now freedmen of of the five civilized tribes? 
These were people who were part of the nation in which they were born. They spoke the language. They practiced the customs. They ate the food. And they remained. Um, Now, some, during the war, had been taken further south, away from Union forces, so their slaves wouldn't be taken. But after the war, they went back home. The only home they knew to be home was the community where they were born, whether it was uh, Tahlequah or Tishomingo. They went home, and they remained and um, lived. Um, There was an effort in Chickasaw Nation to remove the freedmen, particularly because there were large numbers of freedmen, and it was it was feared that oh my gosh, if we adopt these freedmen, even though they signed a treaty that they would, that uh, they'll take over the tribe, and so they refused to officially adopt them. But they didn't leave was home to them, no more than anyone left rural Mississippi that was home to them. And so they remained and remained. Um, the other tribes had adopted the freedmen. In fact, in the Cherokee Nation, you had some who served on the tribal council. In the Creek Nation especially, you had leaders of the tribe who were among the freedmen. Many of them were interpreters. They spoke English and Muskogee. And um, you had one or two interpreters among the Choctaw freedmen. Um, who Watson Brown, his name comes to my mind. He was an, uh, an official interpreter, but there were others. Um, they remained where they were. They became farmers, and they lived there, and many of their children and grandchildren and great-grands still live there today. Uh, by the time, of course, of the Dawes Commission in the late 1890s, they were captured, but they had been captured on earlier roles as well, and their population had been counted in um 1867, the Creeks um, uh, ran a population uh, count. The Dunn roll, they were put on the roll there. Um, uh, D-U-N-N is the name of that particular roll of freedmen. Um, The Cherokee Nation, which had a major census in 1880, and freedmen were counted among the population. They were called adopted colored, but they were still um, there, had not left. And, of course, you had the Wallace Roll um, in 1890s. You had the Kern-Clifton Roll, where people were missed by the Wallace Roll. These are Freedmen Rolls that predated the Dawes Roll. In the Choctaw Nation, you had the 1885 authenticated uh, Choctaw, Chickasaw Freedmen Census. So you have a lot of useful records that genealogists with uh, an interest in particularly these nations will find lots of records to go through. In addition to the other standard records, the military records, if an ancestor served in the home guards or if they served with the U.S. colored troops, many uh, Cherokee and Creek freedmen had also served in the 79th and 83rd U.S. colored infantry. So, of course, those pension files, which we know are wonderfully rich, are also there for them, too. Now, um, okay. there's quite a lot of, of data that one can look at. And are all of the records that you just mentioned federal records? Um, yes, they all are, yes. Um, with um, just about um, every community of Native people, uh, the records are always being kept by the U.S. government to, uh, uh, to some degree, whether it was being done by a, a superintendent on the Western Plains tribe of, of a reservation or whether they, some were captured in the federal census as well. And, of course, we know in the 20th century we have the special 
Indian census of 1900 and 1910. And many freedmen are on those federal records too, those census, special Indian census records also. Okay. All right. And I forgot to mention your book at the top of the show. So uh, Angela has a book, uh, Black Indian Genealogy Research, African-American Ancestors Among the Five Civilized Tribes. So have you covered all of these records in your book? Yes, I have. Okay. And what other things will we find in your book? Well, you will find samples of records from each of the five tribes. Um, I talk about the records themselves and what's unique per tribe. But then I also give an example of a Cherokee Freedman set of records uh, or a Chickasaw Freedman file uh, <clears throat> or Choctaw Freedman, et cetera. Um, are also, um, many people are familiar with the WPA slave narratives that were um, conducted, those interviews were conducted in the 1930s. Well, Oklahoma decided to conduct its own set of interviews also, and it's known as the Indian Pioneer Papers. And that's an amazing 116-volume set of interviews of people who were in what became Oklahoma. Keep in mind, Oklahoma was a relatively new state. It became a state in 1907. There were the twin territories Oklahoma Territory and Indian Territory. But the state of Oklahoma did not enter the Union until 1907. In the 1930s, it was decided, why not interview everyone who was here before statehood? And let's just call them Indian pioneers. If they came into the territory before statehood, let's try and get interviews, as many as we can. Of the 116 volumes, there are many freedmen were interviewed in the Indian Pioneer Papers. That is a part of the Western History Collection of the University of Oklahoma, and it is also digitized. And all you have to do is go to Google, type um, Indian Pioneer Papers. You'll find a link that will pop up taking you right to that collection. It is searchable, and it is free. And um, wonderful interviews that are there of white Indian and um, Freeman. All right. I was, I was going to ask if it had been digitized. So with the, the records that you've talked about, um, uh, you know, just uh, previously, how many of those have been digitized and on, on our line? And how many are we going to have to go to Washington, D.C. or uh, another uh, NARA to look at them on microfilm? The records that you'd have to travel to Washington, D.C. are primarily military pension records. The Dawes Rolls, thankfully, are completely digitized. And, of course, that is where people tend to start. And there are some earlier roles that are digitized. Ancestry formed a partnership with Oklahoma Historical Society as well as with the National Archives uh, branch, a federal record center in Fort Worth, Texas. And Ancestry has digitized them as well. I will point out two sites that hold the DAWs records. Fold3.com and Ancestry.com. And to be honest, I use both of them every day. And um, if I want a quick search and I want to get to find a file quickly, I probably will go and take a quick look on Fold3. And if I want the interview, I go quickly to it on Fold3. If I want to see the pretty card in color, the enrollment card, 
I will then switch and go to Ancestry because Ancestry has the DAWs card and scanned in the original color. And it is important not just because it's nice in color, but sometimes there are notations in the black and white image that are faint. They look as if they were written in pencil, and sometimes they were. Sometimes if you look at the color image, you realize, oh, my gosh, it was written in red. That's why it's so faint on the black and white image. Both of them are there. The interviews are also there. I'll also point out the land allotment applications, which are also significant. Understand that the Dawes Roll, every person, not every family, every person whose name is on the Dawes Roll received a land allotment, even infants and children. And that means there is a corresponding land application or land allotment application that corresponds with that person's name. That can be found on both family search and also on Ancestry. So for the Dawes card and Dawes interview, you have fold three in Ancestry. For the land records, you have family search and Ancestry. Okay. All right. And then for those of us who did not hear the, the show a couple of months ago about the uh, five civilized tribes and the Dawes rules, will you just tell us uh, briefly what exactly are the Dawes rules? The Dawes rules is named after um, Senator Dawes who headed the commission. One of the things that uh, that is not always understood that um, after the Civil War, first of all, the tribes were punished for fighting with the South during the Civil War. Um, it was decided to take a little bit more of their land because if you look at the size of Indian territory at the time of removal and then look at the size of Indian territory, um, let's say 10 years after the war, the, the land mass had become smaller. But statehood was, was approaching and it was decided let us make a change in the way things are done in Indian communities. Land was always held in common and uh, was held in common by the tribe. The land belonged to everyone. It was decided, why don't we introduce the concept of personal land, that everyone gets a personal land, and we can open up the rest of the land to white settlement into what is what eventually became Oklahoma. So the process of uh, the whole Dawes process was to interview those, find those who, who were eligible to be recognized as citizens, give them a parcel of land, whether 40 acres or 300 acres per person, and then open the rest of the land to statehood for settlement, known as the Dawes Commission, the commission named after Henry Dawes, who headed the commission, the senator who, who headed it. Um, it consisted of an enrollment card that was filled out, an interview that was conducted. And, of course, it was not without its controversy. In the Chickasaw Nation, for example, many of freedmen, uh, their interviews had been somehow summarized, and, and um, there was sort of a question, wait a minute, where are the real interviews there? Because if you look at the, the Chickasaw Freedmen interviews, they're small little paragraphs is not the real interview, but that's apart from that's you know uh, apart from the the larger story. The fact is that everyone did get in the land of a, a land allotment, and the purpose was to open up eventually the lands for statehood, which did happen in 1907. The um, role itself, uh, the roles were finally closed 
when all of the children that had been born since the vault had opened in 1898, when everyone was added in, they were closed finally for good in 1914. What remains, of course, is a tremendous, tremendous record set. And, of course, now it's all available uh, for research, and it is, it's amazing. You can find several generations uh, regardless of classification, either freedmen or by blood or whatever, one intermarried white, whatever classification, freedmen records are particularly unique because you have the name of the family, the name of the head of the house, the wife, the children. And on the reverse side, you have the names of the parents of every person whose name is on the front side of the card. So in the case of my own family, for example, I had my great-grandparents. I knew who they were anyway. But Looked it over, and I found my great-grandfather's father and mother, and I found my great-grandmother's father and mother. And that was a surprise. Um, so, you know, I ended up with four brand-new ancestors on that card that I didn't know. And um, amazingly rich data. Okay, so you're you're referring to these records as the freedmen's records. And when we were discussing the, the show via email, I got confused with these records and the Freedmen's Bureau records, yeah, which I'm going Freedmen's to be doing a future show. Yeah. Right. Okay. You're thinking of the United States of America. Indian Territory was not the United States. Those were sovereign nations. They also had former slaves who were also called freedmen. Um, but if you're talking about the United States of America, then, of course, you're talking about the Freedmen's Bureau, not to be confused with the Freedmen's Bank, but some of the same people. But if you're talking Indian Territory, you're talking about five sovereign nations, Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creek, and Seminole, who also had people once enslaved, also freed, and also referred to as freedmen. But um, you cannot talk about the tribes without the fact that slavery occurred and that thousands of people who descend from the freedmen of those five tribes. And so if you're talking about the, the freedmen of Indian Territory, you're not talking about the United States and individuals who would have been served as former slaves from Mississippi or Alabama or Georgia um, because that was the United States. Now, I will make one little thing, and hopefully it won't be confusing. Guess what? The, first of all, the Freedmen's Bureau, the official name of the Freedmen's Bureau, is the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Land. In the United States, the refugees were Southern whites. The freedmen were black, and the abandoned lands belonged to white landholders. So there's one tiny exception. Fort Smith, Arkansas, my hometown, was a field office of the Freedmen's Bureau. They were also the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands. Guess what? Yes, the refugees were white, southern whites. The refugees were also Indians. Indians who were also affected by the Civil War because there were several battles fought in Indian territory, north versus south, such as the Battle of Honey Springs, Battle of Cabin Creek, and they were fought between the North and the South, and you had people who were fighting the Indian Confederate Regiment. But the Freedmen's Bureau in Fort Smith, many of the people who used the Bureau were Indians as well as whites, as well as blacks. So 
that one little Freedmen's Bureau was unique, that one field office, because it served Indians as well. Because, again, it served people who were in need after the war, regardless of color. Very That's interesting. really confused. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is confusing. <laughs> and that's oh, why we yeah, need to hire an expert to uh, make our way through these records. Well, it's, 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 it's the same record set that you spoke about before, um, you know, in, in your earlier show. It's just that there's another category right there in the same group of records on Ancestry. If you go to Ancestry and you type in the name Van, and it'll ask you what tribe, you select the tribe, it'll say what enrollment, and it'll say by blood, freedmen, freedmen minors, by blood minors, intermarried whites. All those categories are right there for you. You can't talk about, you can't talk about America without talking about slavery. You cannot talk about the five civilized tribes without talking about slavery either because we're there we're still there and the records are amazingly rich records and just as integral a set a part of the same record set if you're looking at microfilm well again they have been digitized on both ancestry as well as fold three uh the microfilm publication m1186 those are the enrollment cards and all of those cards you see by tribe, Cherokee, Cherokee Freedmen, Choctaw, Choctaw Freedmen, Seminole, Seminole Freedmen, Creek, Creek Freedmen, Chickasaw, Chickasaw Freedmen. They are right there. And they should be mentioned. Um, when I first wrote my book in 1993, the first edition, that was the very first book and all the genealogy books that have been published over the years that ever mentioned Friedman. It's kind of as if we weren't there, but we were, and we still are. And, and the history is, is a wonderful history to explore. There's no need to, to whisper. Um, uh, it's there, it's real, and it's fascinating, so intriguing, so colorful. Um, when one hears about, um, you know, especially the things that went on in the territory, Cherokee Bill and some of the outlaws and the Rufus Buck gang. Well, look at them. They were freedmen. Cherokee Bill was Cherokee freedmen. Uh, Rufus Buck gang, that was an Indian and freedmen outlaw gang, you know, and the U.S. deputy marshals, many of whom were freedmen. Ike Rogers was a Cherokee freedman himself. He was killed in the line of duty. Um, it's absolutely amazing history. Rufus Cannon, uh, Jim Garrett, all these guys, amazing history. And um, it's just something that I just say, hey, you know, we're, the, our history is fascinating. And it's very rich, and it's mixed up in here. Uh, certainly I cannot imagine anyone talking about American music without referring to jazz, which was created in America. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an integral part of history, and it's okay to mention it. Um, you know, it's just something that's there, and it should not be, you know, sort of overlooked or forgotten or covered over. It's something to cover over. It's, it's just wonderful history. Um, so, you know, I'm just really happy that um, I have an opportunity to talk about them. I talk about them all the time, though, because I have enough blogs and websites. 
that give me that chance to and give me that platform. So. Okay, and I do want to point out uh, that uh, Angela's uh, uh, website is on the Blog Talk page, so you can find her blog, and then you can also find her podcast uh, through through that as well. Um, and then Angela, um, we are coming up to the end of the show, and I'm wondering wow. if you have have a, if you have a, maybe like ten ten minutes that we can add to the show. Sure, I'd be happy okay. to. Okay, and so I'm I'm going to take a very brief break uh, be, before we okay. uh, get to the last part of the show. This is the Forget Me Not <coughs> Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not uh, Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. We are uh, going to be back on the first Wednesday of the month. Uh, that's the New York-focused show. That is March 1st at 10 o'clock in the morning. My guest will be Richard Haberstroh. Uh, he is the author of the book, German Churches of Metropolitan New York, a research guide. And so we're going to be fo- focusing on New York City Germans and their churches on that show. And then on the third Wednesday of the month, that's the general interest show. Um, that's on March 15th, also at 10 o'clock Eastern time. We're going to be focusing on the Freedmen's Bureau records, uh, which Angela has, has already mentioned today. And my guest will be Tom Reed. Uh, he is the senior marketing manager for Family Search. Uh, and he was involved with the digitization project. Uh, so that, again, will be on uh, Wednesday, March 15th. And uh, if you have any questions for the upcoming guests, if you have feedback for the show, if you have show ideas, please contact me. You can find me at janeewilcox.com. So today, Angela, uh, we are uh, going to uh, we extend the show just a little bit uh, because I have some, some uh, burning questions uh, for researching. And I'm wondering if you can offer any tips uh, for people who are doing their own research uh, for their, their freedmen of the five civilized nations. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things, of course, um, I, I always encourage people to do is to adhere to standard genealogical practices, standard genealogical methods. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, Many times I know when it comes to Native American research, there is oftentimes a desire to find the Indian ancestor, not even understanding perhaps the history, what makes the the history particularly unique. And I always say, well, don't just jump and start looking at Dawes Rolls if you haven't done the regular research, meaning this records, um, 1940 and backwards. Oh, pardon me. I'm, I got a tickle in my throat here. But um, um, especially if one is not quite sure, 
that they have ties to the five tribes, and they're just thinking, well, gee, I hear that our ancestors are part Cherokee, you know, but you don't jump on the dog's rolls before you connect yourself to that time period in which the dog's rolls were created. I will say that uh, if you do know there's a strong Oklahoma tie and you have done the genealogical research with with the census and the vital records, then, of course, you are ready to take a look and see who's there. If you get to that period in 1910, 1900, and you also see the families appearing on one of those special Indian census records, well, then you may also have a pretty good lead that the person was on the Dawes Rolls. And again, we've already talked where one can find those Dawes records, those enrollment cards, and and those interviews in particular, Fault 3 and Ancestry. But again, the standard process. Also remember to incorporate the same additional records, military. Look at those draft cards. If they were, if you have an ancestor who's on the Dawes roll that you've located, and this person was a male, particularly if they lived in Cherokee Creek or Choctaw Nations, Take a look at U.S. Colored Troops to see if they enlisted in either the 79th or 83rd or even possibly the 11th U.S. Colored Infantry because that was organized in Fort Smith right on the border. But um, take a look and see because they may have been um, some of the soldiers who did serve in the Union Army. And, again, there's a possibility, especially for the Cherokee Creek, that they may have been in the Home Guards as well, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Indian Home Guards because I've identified at least 70 um, African uh, men who served with the Indian Home Guards. Most of them were Creek, but there were a couple of Cherokees who, uh, Cherokee Freemen who were also with the Home Guards. So I would encourage people, don't forget the military. Okay. And then how uh, relevant are the tips that you get, just gave for other enslaved people of other tribes? Well, when you're saying other enslaved people of other tribes, are you referring to uh, African people who may have been enslaved by other tribes? Yeah. Um, yep. Okay. I don't know that there is a high degree of uh, data on such individuals. Slavery, to my knowledge, black chattel slavery was not practiced to the degree it was in the five tribes. Um I don't know of a record set that reflects slavery, black chattel slavery by other tribes. Um, There may be, and I've yet to find out what they might be, but um, to that extent, um, that is a story that is unique to those nations. And, And, of course, I always sort of put sort of in parentheses a slight exception to Seminoles because, again, their relationship was slightly different. But, um, I don't know that one is going to find slaves held by any of the tribes in the Confederacy of the Iroquois, for example. I'm not aware that they were slaveholders in terms of of black cattle slavery. um, And other Plains nations, you won't find that to my knowledge. Okay. um, There's just not that type of documentation. And if there was, it's yet to be discussed. Um, at length, and I don't, I'm not familiar with that. Okay, all right. So then, with the, your own research or research that others have done that that you know know about, what are some of the surprising stories 
uh, of the people that you've uncovered? Well, I guess um, I won't necessarily say surprising. I've just found fascinating. Um, individuals who have stood out for some reason. And um, as you really look at the details of their life, it becomes, wow, what a colorful person. I think of Sugar George, for example. Um, he's a man I had discovered his name on, <clears throat> excuse me, on a list of loyal creeks. This is a man who lived in the Muscogee Creek Nation. And the first time I saw him, I just thought his name was kind of amusing. Sugar George or Sugar T. George. Um, I found his name was Sugar Tooth George. I was like, oh, that's kind of amusing. But then I began to read about him. And wait a minute. This guy was uh, a very wealthy man. This man was also said to have been a lawyer. This man was also uh, a pastor, Reverend Sugar George, or sometimes referred to as Reverend George T. Sugar. But... Um, this man served in the House of Warriors and the House of Kings in the Muscogee Creek Nation. I found out he served with the Indian Home Guard, so I pulled his pension file. Pulled his pension file, found out that he was being introduced to um, the pension board through an Indian territory. I'm thinking, wow, really? Um, but he was a man of wealth, of land. Um, he, again, he served on the tribal council serving in two ruling houses, House of Warriors and House of Kings. And he was also the uh, director, superintendent of Tallahassee Mission School, which was a boarding school for Creek freedmen, Creek and Seminole freedmen. And he was on the board of that school. He was a literate man. And the more I found, the more I looked about him, the more I found about him. And um, again, wow. Why isn't there anything there written about him? Why doesn't his name appear? Um, when I read some of the interviews of other Creek Freedmen, and they're asking questions, oh, yes, uh, were you married? Yes, oh, we got married at Sugar George's house. And I realized, oh, my gosh, this man, his his house was sort of the center of, of town where he lived in Muskogee. He was also the town king of North Fork Town. And, uh, wow, just really rich history. There's Harry Island, who was an interpreter in the 1870s. There's Cal Tom, who was also not just a leader, but a leader in the tribal council who went to Washington with the tribe. I just continue to find fascinating individuals whose stories need to be told, as you say. Um, our ancestors want their stories to be told. And yeah. particularly because you know, well, my ancestors were freedmen of the five tribes, and uh, for a long time, nobody ever mentioned them. And uh, no, you can't talk about them. Well, I'm going to make some noise because you're going to say, oh, yeah, 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 we've heard of Sugar George. Well, hey, let me tell you some more about Sugar George. Um, you know, it, it is an incredible, incredible history. And um, it's one that no one should feel embarrassed and shamed about. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And these people are so resilient. And, uh, and, wow. and, and, and go ahead. No, go ahead. You were going to ask. A I was going to say, and what about the women of the freedmen? You know, what, what are we going to find about them in these records? Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, you're going to find oftentimes women are the culture bearers of the family. And I think of my great-grandmother. Who, you know, she was 98 years old when she died. She died in 1961, 
And um, he was born in 1863, in the middle of the war. And this is the woman that really sort of uh, uh, brought the Choctaw culture and the Friedman culture and sustained it, as, as many women do. But, again, the culture bearer, she's the one who still made Tom Fuller and Pashofa and some of the, the um, uh, you know, the traditional dishes that, you know, I sort of grew up with, thought everybody ate it and thought everybody ate, you know, the, the corn cakes the way we ate them. And, um, you know, doesn't everybody eat blue dumplings? You know, my gosh, it's, you know, it's something that, again, was just part of what she did, we did. Uh, the women were remarkable women. Um, there's a picture of Cherokee Bill, who was a notorious outlaw, by the way. <laughs> he was a Cherokee Friedman, and um, it was very important. He, he had a portrait taken of himself and his mother the day before he was executed by Judge Parker. But it's amazing because Ellen Lynch was such a, the backbone of the community uh, around her in Fort Gibson. And um, the women were such strong characters. They were the heart of the family. And as I say, the culture bearers of the tribe in so many cases. And their stories, they're just being told. If you want to read a fascinating story, read the interview of Lucinda Davis. Lucinda Davis was interviewed in, the, in, in both Indian Pioneer Papers and the WPA Slave Narrative. This woman was an eyewitness to the Battle of Honey Springs. She was a young girl, and as she said, she remembers, you know, she was rocking the baby. She spoke more Creek than she spoke English. But, you know, her, her interview, of course, does appear in English, and um, she tells the story of how, you know, she hears the screaming and this Indian in a gray uniform with a crisscross on the flag flying off in one direction, and then a bunch of people go behind them, and then they come back, and then they're being chased by these men, these blue soldiers, and then they started hearing all these cannons. This young girl remembers so vividly what was going on as she witnessed the one battle in Indian territory it kept Fort Gibson in Union hands, and uh, which led to uh, the Union stronghold on the Western Theater of the Civil War. It's amazing some of the things that she shared and, and still remembered. Um, yes, the women were key people, not just in their families, but in their communities. And um, look at Betty Ligon. Betty Ligon, a Chickasaw freedwoman, a woman who's a daughter of Benjamin Love, a Chickasaw Indian, who acknowledged her as his daughter. He always acknowledged her as his daughter. She was put on the freedman role, which meant she was going to get less land. And um, she spearheaded a movement to, uh, of not only herself but 2,000 other people to um, get their treatment by the Dawes Commission in that in that process. She also was an activist. She the one who kept the, the doors of the courthouse open, stood there and, and, and kept the doors open so people could go in and, and have their interviews heard. Amazing woman. Um, and uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Terry Ligon, is a director synonym of Betty and who keeps the story of Betty, and as he calls it, Betty's List, uh, alive. Her role in terms of becoming a leader among Chickasaw freedmen. There's so many rich stories that are there. You know, the teachers, the the teachers in the freedmen schools, whose stories have not been told enough. And so, um, 
there's a lot of work still to do, another book to write. So um, <laughs> there's yeah, a lot to keep me busy. Okay. All right. And then if, like you, if somebody is tracing their Freedman ancestors, mm-hmm. are, do you get stuck in Oklahoma uh, or are you able to take that line back farther into the, the southeast? It depends. Um, I, just like anything else, if you're at a point, if your people were enslaved, you want to know who the slaveholder was, but you want to research the slaveholder's family as much as you can. And um, that means if you can follow the slaveholder back to their time before removal, before they left Mississippi or before they left Georgia or before they left um, wherever they may have lived, Alabama perhaps if they were Creek, um, you want to be able to follow them as far as the record trail goes. I have, for example, uh, my great-grandmother's grandmother, her grandmother was Kitty, Kitty Perry, who was uh, enslaved by the Perry family from Yalavusa, Mississippi. And uh, Hardy Perry, who was the patriarch of that particular family, uh, and they immigrated in that first that first removal in 1830-31 that winter. But I know where they came from in Mississippi. And um, uh, I know that she came with them. Now, I have been able to look at some additional records of the Perrys, and now I don't know where Kitty was from before that. She was born in Mississippi herself also, and uh, who her parents were, I've yet to be able to find that out. But again, one of the things that was pointed out by um, scholar Andrew DeBow was that at the time, after the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit was signed in 1829 of Dancing Rabbit Creek, uh, many people knew, okay, we're going to be removing in a year to the West. Many people sold a bit of property so they could afford to purchase slaves. So from home, those slaves were purchased. You know, that's certainly, I'm sort of stuck right there in Mississippi. I am personally. Someone else may have been able to go back farther. But the same way, you want to do the same thing you would do if your ancestors are from um, Kentucky. If you get to the point where you have identified the last known slaveholder, you have to study their history as much as you can to see what else can be gleaned from that. And yeah, we're all going to hit a roadblock at some point, but one should be able to get out of Oklahoma or out of the territory because, of course, we know Oklahoma was in Oklahoma until the 20th century. But yes, you can get out of the territory and um, with some tenacity, you should be able to at least get to the place of removal, to the community of removal. Okay. And, And about when was Kitty born? Pretty from what I can ascertain, assuming that she was um, um, a young woman, which by 19th century terms can mean 14 or 15 years old, uh, and the removal was in the 1830s. I know that Kitty was brought as a young woman, quotation marks around that. So it's an estimate. It's an estimate only. Uh, so I'm saying 1850 to 1820, around that time. I don't know. Um I do see Kitty later, um, after the war, Kitty in freedom with the family and uh, with Amanda, her daughter, who was Sally's mother. And um, she did live until the 1880s. She lived until 
after 1885, I know she was still living then. So, uh, but she did not live long enough to get on the Dawes Rolls, which really saddens me. Well, okay, yeah. all right. And 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 then you have had your autosomal DNA done. How, how much oh. Native American ancestry do you have? Well, according to autosomal tests, uh, what 5.8 percent? That's about six percent. Uh, my brother has also had it done, and uh, we took two different tests. I took 23andMe. He took Ancestry. His is um, said to be 8%, and so mine is 6%. Um, I recently took an Ancestry test, so I'll be curious to see if it's the same or if there's a difference in terms of, of what 23andMe says and what Ancestry says. So when those results come out, there is okay. like 6%. Yeah. Okay, which I think is consistent with one great grandparent, if if I'm remembering uh, possibly, correctly. Yeah. And in okay. Sally's case, um, Sally, my great grandmother, uh, her father was Choctaw, and and that was clear on her Dawes card as well. Okay, all right. Um, and then, and now, how about African? Uh, what percentage African do you have? Okay, it's about seventy percent, and about nineteen uh, percent European. So. The I guess nineteen plus twenty five percent non African if you count the nineteen percent European and six um, percent Native American and um, and then there's that sort of undefined uh, other category I think it's in possibly um, North African possibly Mid Eastern whatever that might mean so um, but again you know uh, I'll be curious to see how it compares when my ancestry results come in too it should be interesting to see <laughs> okay all right and then um, how can we order your book heritage books um, heritagebooks.com you can also get it on Amazon um, if um, uh, I think probably if you want the quickest might be to go through um, heritage books right from the website there heritagebooks.com all right. And then uh, your podcast. Uh, tell us about that. Yes, that is an ongoing podcast. Uh, just uploaded my 406th uh, episode. Uh, it's been going on for about seven years. Um, and that is AfricanRootsPodcast.com. You can also download it from iTunes as well. and um, Or listen to it directly from the podcast website, AfricanRootsPodcast.com. Okay, and then you you speak as well. Where are you speaking next? Well, I just came back from Roots Tech, and it's probably why I have this sort of hoarse voice. I talked myself out all last week in Salt Lake City, uh, which was a lot of fun. Oh, my gosh. I will be giving a webinar tomorrow with um, Family Tree University, and very excited about that, and also giving a webinar next month at the Illinois State Genealogical Society. I'll be talking about uh, women in the Civil War, documenting women in the Civil War, which is sort of another passion of mine, Civil War research, and <clears throat> excuse me, documenting over 12,000 carded service records of women who served as nurses, laundresses, and cooks in the Civil War. And um, hoping someday that those records will be digitized to everyone to be able to utilize wonderful records there. And um, looking forward, of course, to other events. I'm going to be in southeast Arkansas in April, speaking at Lakeport Plantation in Lake Village, Arkansas. And also um, looking forward, of course, 
to the Midwest African American Genealogy Institute in Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, in July. And so I'm pretty busy, pretty busy over the next few months. It sounds like it. So um, actually, and before I ask my last question about your own ancestry, is, is there anything else you would like to add about our topic today, the freedmen of the five civilized tribes? Well, just that, um, number one, explore them. I also want to encourage people, take a look at the rejected files. Don't be upset. A lot of people I've heard, you know, say, well, gee, my ancestors applied, they were rejected, so I didn't bother, you know. I, one of the things that I think can be a problem, and I think we as genealogists are to blame for this, oftentimes Native American ancestry is spoken of in conjunction with tribal enrollment. I encourage people separate the two because tribal enrollment, um, there are all kinds of rules that affect that. It's often political. Deal with your ancestors story, tell their story, and research the story, find it, and and get into the history, whether they were accepted, whether they were rejected, whether they were doubted. If there's a record, if there's a file, embrace that file and tell that story. And the prime example being that of the Mississippi Choctaw records. Now, if you go on Folsory and or Ancestry, you find what are known as the MCR records. This is part of the five civilized tribes, the Mississippi Choctaws, and the largest category, 7,000 files of rejected records. They are amazing. And I must point out, I have found one item among those records that you do not see among Cherokees, Choctaws, Chickasaw, Creek or Seminoles of Oklahoma, the Mississippi Rejected Files, the MCR cards, Mississippi Choctaw Rejected. How amazing to read those files and in the middle of this application jacket, which can go as uh, from 10 pages to 110 pages, in the middle of that file to find a multiple generation hand-drawn pedigree chart. It is mind-blowing. They are beautiful documents to see. Some of these pedigree charts go on for pages. And yes, the family ended up being rejected, but you see how extensive those interviews are. It's amazing. A 20, 30-page interview with a six-page hand-drawn pedigree chart. What a genealogical trumpet. Don't become so wrapped up in the enrollment, oh, well, they were rejected, I won't bother. Wait a minute, is that your goal? Or is your goal to document your family's history? Because your family's history is inside that rejected file as well. And oftentimes, the dialogue, a lot of times when I listen to genealogists talking about Native American, well, now to get in the tribe, you've got to do this, hold it. Are we talking about how to get in the tribe? Are we talking about genealogical records among these nations? And that sometimes gets wrapped up in the same conversation. And I urge people, excuse me, separate the two from each other because, you know, if that's it, it's going to get lost. And definitely 
especially when I talk about the freedmen of the five civilized tribes. Freedmen, in many cases, are not eligible for enrollment. But does that stop you from telling their stories? Well, it does if the presenter is only talking about how to get into the tribe. Then, wow, you're erasing a good portion of the tribe that has a wonderfully rich history that deserves to be told. And, yes, our ancestors do want their stories to be told. <laughs> Including if it's in the rejection papers. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, I'll send you a couple of examples. <laughs> So, okay. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. All right. So we're we're uh, coming up to, to the end of the show. In addition to your Freedman ancestry, what what other ancestry do you have? Well, um, and of course, I research Oklahoma clearly, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Tennessee. And among those individuals, of those. I research, I, of course, love Civil War research. I have nine ancestors who served with the United States Colored Troops. And maybe someday I'll come back and have to tell you about Uncle Cephas. That's a story in and of itself, an amazing story. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I really, really, really enjoy um, finding some of these incredible stories. And one of the things that I encourage people to do, learn the local history. If your folks are from Giles County, Tennessee, well then start learning Giles County history because this is where your ancestors lived and, and functioned and did business and had challenges from day to day. This is something that you want to incorporate. In fact, you find your stories as you begin to study the local history. As you begin to walk the land where they walk, that's when the stories are going to start to emerge. And, um, you know, wow, you know, it's not about a list of names. It's far greater than that because no one wants to listen to your list of names, and I don't want to listen to anyone else's list of names. But if you have a really neat story to tell, I'm probably going to listen to you because you've kept, you've captured my attention, and um, and that is when you know you're making. That's when you know you're pleasing the ancestors when you're telling their stories. Okay, and then for your African lines, were they all enslaved Africans? Yes, I don't have any free people of color that I have found yet, and um, so yes, um, the lines that I know so far are all enslaved people. Yes. Okay. And then where have you t taken them back to their, their, as um, far back in their origins? In terms of time period, um, let's see, on my mother's side, my mother's side is interesting because my, uh, one of the oldest stories on my mother's side comes from a story that many of the people who are in interviewed in the slave narratives, they would refer to them, and I have the same story, The Night the Stars Fell. And my, um, well, I guess she's not my oldest because I know who her mother was, but uh, my mother's great-grandmother, who was born in the 1820s, often spoke about the night the stars fell, and um, which was an incredible meteor shower. And if you just Google that, the night the stars fell, you will find all kinds of historical references to a spectacular meteor shower that occurred over North America in November of 1833. And even in slave narratives, 
when people talk about, um, you know, their lives as slaves and they'll say, well, I was living on the so-and-so plantation when the stars fell, or I was a little girl when the stars fell. And it was a spectacular um, meteor shower. It has been the largest one. It's the person meteor shower occurs every November. And, uh, but it was the most spectacular it had ever been in that particular winter, and nothing has been documented since then to have been that spectacular. About a 1,000 stars were shooting across the sky for an hour. There were that many. And um, so that was a major event, and she talked about it too, and it's certainly part of my family history. Her parents were born in Virginia, and um, I know that she was born around 1820, and that's just around. It's, It's approximate, clearly. But um, at the same time, I know that her parents, uh, whose names I know, were born about 1790s. Where in Virginia, though? I'm stuck there. I don't know where. Because they were taken to Tennessee, which is where Amanda was born, and where sort of the, the, the family saga sort of unfolds there. Uh, beyond that, um, probably... I have, I guess, three clusters of ancestors who were all born around that same time period, one being my Mississippi Choctaws family, Kitty and her family, Um, one, of course, being Amanda and her parents, Martha and John, and then my other set of Tennessee ancestors, Irving and Nancy, and uh, who were from Dallas, Tennessee, and they're a little bit after that. I took them around 1810. But um, so that's approximately, you know, in terms of the farthest having been able to go so far. Um, one never knows when something else may may appear. Um, there are some methods, though, I have been uh, um, alerted to that may exist in uh, Murray County, Tennessee, that may reflect just a little bit more on um, the the candles out of that particular county and the place. So I have to take a trip to the state archives in Tennessee and see what I can find. So. Okay. All right. And is there any one ancestor who has called out to you the most? Well, they all do, but um, I know I'm going to have to have to uh, do some serious writing about Uncle Cephas. Um, Uncle Cephas is a man. He was a Civil War soldier, but it's interesting because the knowledge of Uncle Cephas almost didn't happen. Um, at a family reunion, uh, uh, my great uncle was the last person living who had ever heard his name. And it was almost a situation where we had to coax it out of him. Um, there was a reference to something that happened in Tennessee. And so Uncle George made a comment. Yeah, well, you know, they said he shot somebody that day. They had to run away to Texas. Oh, really? Well, hang on. What was the story? Um, Pardon me. The story was interesting because um, um, he, you know, the uncle was very hesitant. Well, we're not supposed to talk about it. And finally, you know, our cousin um, Buddy said, you know, wait a minute. Uncle George, they're all dead. Nothing can happen now. It's okay to say his name. Well, his name was Cephas. And um, and all we know that something happened, and he shot somebody and ran away to Texas. Well, we found out what happened. The family had been attacked by night riders. The Klan had attacked the family. This is the um, in 1888, summer of 1888. 
and the family living in Giles County had been attacked by night riders from Pulaski, this is Giles County. And um, Uncle Sixus, well, it wasn't really known, you know, well, how'd he come to get a gun or, you know, how'd he shoot somebody? But he did. In fact, it said that he, he killed two of the Klansmen who had attacked the family. And while he was a marksman, he was a former Union soldier and still had his musket. And, um, yes, he did leave for Texas. But now that we knew his name, I was able to find him in the records in Texas. Now, at that time, when I located him in the census, oh, my gosh, there's a Cephas badge here. Well, I didn't quite know much beyond that on a whim, and I didn't know he had been a soldier. I said, geez, from Tennessee, I wonder if he was in the U.S. Colored Troops. Turns out that he was, and guess what? He was falling for a pension from Texas. I pulled the file, and sure enough, I was born in Giles County, Tennessee. I knew that was my Cephas. And then he told the most incredible story. He didn't even deal with the Night Riders. He told the story of how he and his brother and two of his sons all enlisted in the U.S. Colored Infantry. As a family of soldiers entered the Union Army together. So, of course, I was intrigued by that. But then he goes on to talk about how they were captured by Nathan Bedford Forrest. Now, people who are into Civil War history and if they're into Confederate Army, you know, they love Robert E. Lee, but they also love Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was supposedly, be, I guess, he was a general, and one of the best Confederate generals, et cetera, et cetera. Here is my ancestor saying he's captured by Nathan Bedford Forrest, then goes on to say, but we escaped. <laughs> I'm thinking, what? What? Is this real? Sure enough, you go to fall three, pull up his, his Service record, 111th U.S. Colored Infantry, Cephas Baz, captured, taken prisoner, returned after escape. Wow. And I'm thinking, he's a cow. You are a Civil War hero in the world. We never knew this. The only story that had gotten to the family, oh, he shot somebody, he had to run away to Texas. But the more I began to look, the more I learned that, oh, my goodness, Uncle Cephas was an amazing man. So, you know, as strong as I feel about so many aspects of my family and so many branches, Uncle Cephas is standing up there with his musket saying, I've got a story, too, to tell. So he calls out to me a lot because I have a lot of friends who tell me, you'd better tell the story of Uncle Cephas somewhere in the next year. People need to hear his story. So, <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And you just told the story. So thank you for that. Sure thing. I'm glad you asked. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, Angela, thank you so much for joining us. It's just been a fascinating show. And and as you said, it's it's a group of people that I was not even aware of until you and Bernice pointed it out. And their their stories do need to be told. So thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for the chance to have this chance to come and share some of them with you. I appreciate it. All right. Uh, This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Have a good day. Take care. Bye-bye.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.